This is the Life Church Podcast. For more messages, to watch our live stream, or to find other events, go to lifechurchnow.org. It's going to be a good day. We're, we're kicking off a new series today called, called Uncommon. Um, on October 3rd, there was this interesting uh, story that went viral on the, on the internet. Uh, you, you, I'm sure many of you saw it. It was a story of a young man by the name of Brant Jean, um, who was testifying in court. You know, I think it was in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. He was testifying in court, and he was on the witness stand. Um, and I think it was a, the, it, his brother had been, had been um, wrongfully shot, killed, uh, not getting into all the details of what happened, but basically that had happened. And so he got up and, and he was talking about how he was extending forgiveness to this, uh, to this police officer who had shot, like I said, wrongfully shot the, the brother. <clears throat> and um, now I'm not here to talk about that event in specifics because the reality is that politically our, the world that we live in has taken this event and has gone polarized to the left or to the right. I don't really care about all of that stuff. They're, they're going to do that. That's, the goal is to divide rather than, than, to, than to unite. But what I, what I was impacted by was this young man extending forgiveness for the killer of his brother. And he dug deep into his faith to actually forgive. I, I, I can't remember her name. Shannon, I think it was a police officer, a woman police officer. He dug deep into his, into his faith to extend forgiveness Something that actually in the world that we live in is very uncommon. It's very, very uncommon. We don't see that frequently. So oftentimes it's revenge or whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of responses to things like this that we, and maybe even in this room, we would respond differently than that. What is it about that? Notice that it was connected. He wasn't just doing this sort of out of the goodness of this. It was connected to his deep-seated faith. He had said to her that he wanted her to give her life to Jesus. That that would hopefully be the end result. And he would forgive her. We're going to do this series. We're starting a series today called Uncommon. And we're going to be looking at the book of Thessalonians and what we're going to see in, with the Thessalonians is that they display this uncommon kind of faith. And so in many ways, what I want to talk about in this series is how, how oftentimes the church operates counterculture to the wider society. That oftentimes what we would ac- accept as normal, routine, common sense, whatever, in this world is oftentimes challenged by the scriptures and challenged to be different not different for different sake, but different for, for the purpose of glorifying God in this world. So we're going to be looking at Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul had founded this church in Thessalonica, and, and now he's hearing great reports. He's hearing that the church is growing. He's hearing that, that they're loving one another, that they're standing firm, even though they're being persecuted. He's, learning, he's learned that the, that the church is preaching the gospel even though they are being persecuted. 
He gets this, and so he's so overjoyed with the progress of this very, very young church, because they're young in, in the Lord. They're not seasoned believers. They, they haven't been following Jesus for a very long time. He's very encouraged by it. So he writes this letter to encourage them and also to instruct them, because he realizes that they're young believers, that they need instruction, they need guidance on how to live out their Christian faith. One of the clear things that we see that Paul is going to display in this letter is this idea of commitment. That in the church today, what is necessary is an uncommon commitment to one another. Are you hearing me? Pausing for effect. (laughs) Commitment. For a lot of people, that can be like a dirty word. Let's not talk about that, you know. Let's not go there. And yet, all of us commit to things. What Paul is demonstrating in this letter is this uncommon commitment that he has for the Thessalonians. And what we're going to see is that this commitment is the basis for community. That this commitment is really the basis for a life-giving church. And so if you, if you want to... If, if you want to find a church that's life-giving, what you're going to find, and, when you, and there are many out there, but when you connect to a church that's life-giving, what you're going to discover is that there is this deep-seated commitment that people have towards one another. Commitment. Mother Teresa, <clears throat> Mother Teresa once said that the most devastating disease in the world is not cancer or leprosy, and she knew leprosy. She had been around it. She cared for people who were dying in the very last stages of death and, uh, you know, basically gave her life for serving these kind of people. She said the most devastating disease in the world is not cancer or leprosy. The most devastating disease in the world is loneliness. Interesting. And part of this is because of what she discovered that many of these people, the people that she worked with were outcast. They were people that nobody wanted. Oftentimes, they would literally overnight die on the street alone. And they would have to have this wagon that would go through early in the morning picking up dead bodies off the street. And for her, what was deeply moving was not so much that this person had leprosy or that this person had some kind of other disease or that they were poor. What was deeply concerning to her was that they were lonely. They were dying without people. And loneliness is not just about not having people around you. I mean, you could be surrounded by people and still be lonely, right? It's not about not having bodies around you. It's about this feeling lonely. In fact, studies have shown that loneliness has an adverse effect on our health. That over, that, that if, you, if there's, Loneliness over extended periods of time, our lifespan is actually shortened. That it has this adverse effect on our health, much like cigarette smoking or drugs or other kinds of vices that would, that would basically physiologically damage our body. Loneliness has the same effect in many ways. 
This is why when you read the creation story, you see that God creates all of things. He created everything that you see, everything that, you, that, that we know, that we, the air that we breathe in. He creates it. And every time he created something, he created it and he said, it is good. It is good. I, you know, I'm proud of the fish in the sea that I created. It is good. I'm proud of the animals on the land that I created. It is good. But when he creates man, Adam, he says, it is not good that he be alone. How interesting is that? That God himself, the perfect God himself, creates something and then says of himself, this is not good. I got to make it better. And how do you make it better? By creating community. By creating two people who would do life together. We were created for community. He's created you for togetherness. You need, emphasis on need, you need people. You need a tribe. You need to be doing, you need to share your life with other people. We have been created for community. We're not ever meant to be alone. So what I want to do over the next few minutes, I want to talk about this distinctive of the church, this uncommon togetherness, this uncommon commitment that we have towards one another. We're meant to be in community where we are committed to one another. The church should never be a place where, where a person walks out of the doors feeling uncared for, not wanted. This should be the place. If there's any place on earth, this should be the place where people say, those are my people. That's my tribe. Those are the ones that when I'm struggling, they're there. Community. So we're going to look at First Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 17. But before I go, I'm going to kind of give you a hint of, of what I want you to catch here. I kind of wrote this statement. Deep community is based on a heartfelt commitment to one another. Deep community, which I would, I would assume that most of us in this room, we want deep community. And some of us don't know what that actually means or we've not really fully experienced that. But, but we want we want to do life with others. We despise the feeling of aloneness. Of not having somebody caring for us. Not having somebody watching out for us. That just doesn't go well with us. And so we want deep community. Deep community is based on a heartfelt commitment to one, of a, to one another. Many of us, we want community. But we don't always want commitment. Commitment is hard. Honestly, the truth is that we don't get community without commitment. We don't. Can't have it. Might it's might it's a little bit artificial, but you just can't have it. And the reason why a lot of us are lonely is because we we want those connections, we want that community, but we are not willing necessarily to to make a commitment. See, the depth of community that you experience is directly tied to the commitments you make to one another. You hear me? So we'll see this modeled in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul speaking. But before I get into that, let me give you a little bit of context. In Acts chapter 17, you find the story of Paul and Silas going to this place called Thessalonica. They're traveling missionaries, and so they get to this city called Thessalonica, modern-day Thessaloniki. They get to this city, and they walk in. The first thing that they did, which they always would do when they would go to a city, is that they go straight to the synagogue, and they would... They would, they would basically preach in the synagogue. 
And as they were in the synagogue, what they would say, they would basically claim and proclaim Jesus Christ as the Messiah. In verse 3, it tells us, in Acts 17.3, it tells us that many people heard the message and they believed. Many Jews heard the message and believed. And so this new community begins to form. It's kind, of a, it's kind of an odd, unusual community because there's a few Jews and a bunch of Gentiles. People who normally would never really associate. If they associated with each other, it was for utilitarian purposes only. They, they didn't want to have relationship with each other. They didn't, want to be, they, didn't want to, they didn't really want to know each other intimately. All they wanted to do was be able to buy goods in the market and sell goods in the market. They wanted to be able to buy a house and sell a house. They didn't want to have anything to do with each other beyond just the utility of it. But now this group of people, Jews and Gentiles, are calling each other brother and sister. How weird is that? And not just like, you know, hey, bro, (laughs) not that kind of brother. (laughs) Like brother, like family, you're family, you're a part of this family. In Acts 17.5, then we see that there's some Jews that were kind of unhappy with this this new community. They don't like the idea that there's Jews and Gentiles that are mingling and so they start a riot. And they find out that it's the people that were doing, preaching this message were Paul and Silas. And Paul and Silas were staying in the home of a guy named Jason. Yes, you heard me right. There is a Bible character by the name of Jason. Doesn't sound like a very biblical name. But there is a Jason. So if you're Jason here, guess what? Your name goes way back. Okay. And so they go to Jason's house to arrest Paul and Silas and they discover that they're not there and so they arrest instead Jason and his family and they tell Jason, listen, if they come back, we're gonna, we're gonna put you in prison for hosting them. And so that night, late that night, this newly formed community, you have to understand they're baby believers, brand new Christians. They don't know a whole lot. They've, they've just had this relationship, this brand new relationship with Jesus, just something very, very new to them. They, they risk their lives. They, they sneak Paul and Silas out of the city, and you find that Paul and Silas then go to a city called Berea. But what's of note is that Paul and Silas could not or did not say goodbye to this new, new community. Paul had a whole lot more to say to them, a whole lot more he wanted to do there, and yet he was forced out of the city. He wanted to express his love for them, he wanted to express his commitment to them, but but it was cut short. So here he is now later writing a letter, basically saying some of the things he he wished he could have said earlier, but he he didn't have an opportunity to, and he's, uh, you know... He's expressing his feelings for them, right? He wants to, he wants to let him know that he, there, there's affection for them, that there's love for them, that there's commitment towards them. Actually, a, a good example of what the church should look like. In, in, Acts, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, this is what he says. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned, interesting choice of word, we'll get to that in a second. When we were orphaned by being separated from you, this is what happened in Acts 17, they were separated. When we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, and then he puts himself in parentheses, in person, not in thought. In other words, we were separated from you. It's not, we didn't forget about you. We're thinking about you all the time. We're praying for you. We love you. We care for you. But in person, we've been separated. We're not there physically. Out of our intense longing, we made every effort 
to see you. Do you feel how Paul is speaking here, the language that he's using? He's trying to let them know that they are loved, that he's committed to them. Now here's our problem culturally though. Increasingly, we measure relationships. Increasingly, we measure relationships by connection rather than by commitment. In this world that we live in, that's how we often measure relationships. It's by connection rather than by commitment. And the problem with that is that you can have connection, but without commitment, there's really no community. You're just a blob out there. Very connected. Very knowledgeable. I mean, it's amazing how much knowledge is floating out there. We, it's amazing how like a, a 15-year-old can have so much knowledge of the world and yet not experience a single bit of it just because they were able to grasp it from this internet out there. And they might even be passionate about things that they've never, ever even experienced just because they're connected. In 2008, roughly 10% of the U.S. population had a social media platform. 10%, that's it. 2008, if you had said to me, Facebook, I'm like, what? Back then, what was it? It was something else. MySpace. What? What else was it back then? Huh? MySpace. MySpace. See, MySpace back then, you know, it's a MySpace. I'm like, what? No, this is MySpace. What do you mean? No, no, MySpace. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't know what was going on. You know, Chris Carey had to bring me in onto this whole idea uh, of, of, of social media platforms and all of that kind of stuff, you know. That was 2008, there was 10%. 2019, today, 11 years later, over 80% of the U.S. population has some kind of social media platform. Over 80%. And what it was selling was this idea of connection and potentially connection that would lead to community. But what they've discovered is there's these unexpected relational dynamics that have actually resulted out of this connectedness, this social media platform. Stuff that they did not expect. In fact, it was the opposite of what they thought would happen. This is Wall Street Journal in 2017. It said this, that increased use of social media has resulted in an increased feeling of isolation. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Like, you're more connected, but you feel more isolated. There's this uh, professor at MIT, Sherry Turkle. She wrote a book called Alone Together. Great book. Kind of, kind of scientific in many ways. But, uh, and I didn't read it all. I just kind of browsed through it and found this quote. <laughs> But um, Sherry Turkle, this is what she says about social media. Social media offers the illusion, okay, it's an important word, offers the illusion of companionship without the demands of a relationship. I don't know if you heard that, right? Like, like if, if social media could offer the reality, reality of companionship without, the, without all of the relational dynamics, then sign me up. Right? If, I could have, if I could have real significant companionship without all the stuff that happens in relationships, then I, wanna, I want that. But that's not what she says. It says it offers the illusion of companionship. It's not real. You think it's real, but it's not real. Our synapses are telling us this is, this is a real relationship, but it's really not real. And we're bypassing this idea of commitment. Said another way, it offers the illusion of community without the demands of commitment. It's left us feeling lonelier and lonelier than ever. This is something we need to hear. Because, I mean, 
many of you are here because you, you want community. You want those kind of relationships. I want those kind of relationships. We're not meant to be alone. The problem for us is that the challenge, and the challenge for us is that we've adopted this social media model on how we do church, on how we do family, on how we do school, on how we do our workplace. It's, it's the model that we use. As long as you're connected, you know, then you're okay. As long as you have knowledge, you're okay. Well, but there's not a whole lot of commitment to it, right? And so we come to a place like this, this church, and today there'll probably be close to 900 people here today. And you'll come to this church and you'll be surrounded by all kinds of people and, and certainly, certainly you will feel this idea, this idea of community, but at the end of the day, you'll walk out of here feeling frustrated and struggling and probably very likely to say, you know what, something's wrong with that church. Because there was all these people and I didn't feel connected or I didn't feel community. I didn't feel anything. And the reality is, it's not here. It's commitment. See, it's commitment that leads to this idea of community until we're willing to put ourselves in a position of risk, until we're willing to go to somebody that we don't really know very well and say, hey, my name is Rich. What's your name? What do you do? Oh, okay. Yeah, you know, I'm in this small group. Would you want to join this small group? Until we're willing to do that and start walking down this path of commitment with somebody, we won't really ever experience community. So what Paul is doing here is he's basically speaking to these Thessalonians and he's just being very vulnerable with them. He's just giving, you know, it's affectionate language that he's using. He's putting himself out there. He's extending himself. I mean, they could reject him. They could say, hey, you, you were here and you just left us and never came back. They could do that because that's what happened. But he's trying to say, look, I haven't forgotten about you. I've been thinking about you, but I, I haven't been able to get there. This passage is also a great example of what a heart of a pastor looks like. I, I, can I get a little personal with you? Okay, good. I don't know what, I, you know why that's a very rhetorical question, because I don't know what I, what I would have done if you had said no. No, you may not. <laughs> you may not get personal with us, Rich. Just say something different. You know, I would be like, okay, I'm going to say it anyways. Uh, in 2014, and 2005, when we moved here, um, we came to start Life Church. That was specifically the reason why we moved here. And when we moved here, there wasn't a whole lot of guarantees about whether the church, whether this would ever happen, you know, whether you would be here, whether we would be in this building. We didn't know. We, didn't, we had faith for things, but we weren't sure what was going to actually fully materialize at the end of the day. And so um, we moved here. And so the only thing that I could really land on in terms of commitment was commitment to my own family and commitment to my children. My, my children, my, my son, Jonathan, who's sitting right here, knows this. He was 17 or 16, 16, 17, 17 when we moved here. And we had bounced him around, bounced him between Louisiana, Bangladesh, California, and then here. And so um, when we got here, we said, okay, we're here. We're starting this church, and we're, we're going to be committed to being here. Now, an easy marker for us was to say my daughter at that time, who was seven years old, I think she was like a third grader or something like that, whatever a seven-year-old is, second grader. <clears throat> an easy marker was for us to say, okay, we are here, 
and until she at least graduates from high school. So that gave us a good, I don't know, 14 years, or sorry, 11 years. Um, and so we were here. We're committed to that, right? That was, our, that was our goal. This happened, my daughter, Caitlin, graduated from high school three and a half years ago, and so I'm here to announce that I'm actually, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm not going there. <laughs> um, we're talking about commitment. To do what we did, to stay here till my daughter graduated from high school, required us to commit to being here, to being the pastor of this church, to walking and doing life with people in this church. And uh, there was an unexpected consequence for that for me. See, along the way, when I was committed to my family and I was committed to, to the Lord Jesus Christ and starting a church along the way, something happened. I, I kind of like fell in love with you. And um, you became family to me. And it gave much more reason and I have cause to be here. I wake up in the morning because it's my family I'm here with now. Much more than just having the title of lead pastor, you are my family. There's some of you in this room that I've cried with you because at, your, at a funeral of a loved one. There's some of you in this room that we've just laughed and had a great time at your wedding. We became family. <clears throat> and that only comes from commitment. That only comes from commitment. You want to know why divorce happens in the world? Uncommit, people that are uncommitted. Commitment. Commitment to one another. I don't know if you caught this in what Paul says. He uses the word orphaned. It's kind of a weird choice of words, kind of a really strong word. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying basically, you're my family. I know we didn't know each other very well. I know we didn't spend a lot of time with each other. I was, it was cut short, but you're my family. And so I've been orphaned. We've been orphaned from you. In other words, we've lost a parent. We've, we've lost a child. It's as, it feels as if we've lost a parent or lost a child. Well, Paul goes on to explain, you know, what it looks like to be committed to each other. Let me put it this way. Commitment to others is marked by intense longing and intentional effort. So if you, if you, if you want to know if you're committed to someone or someone's committed to you, then there's going to be, this is a good place to start. There's going to be this intense longing. There's going to be this intentional effort to be with, with each other. Some of you know what I'm talking about because, not so much because of, of it, but because of the absence of it. Like there are people in your life. You can name them. But there's no intense longing. There's no intentional commitment, no, intention, no intentionality in the relation, and therefore you don't feel like they're committed to you, and so you know something is missing. That's what Paul says in verse 17, he says, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Put another way, the proof of commitment is showing up, showing up for one another. A beautiful example of this is the showing up power of Jesus. He was God. He had it all. He didn't need us, and yet he decided he needed us. He made a choice. He left it all, and he came down to this earth, and he walked among us, and then he was brutally killed, and he did all of that because of his commitment to you and me. There was sacrifice involved. See, when we're committed 
<clears throat> to relationships that should follow. We should be able to tell stories about our commitment to one another. We should be able to tell stories of how we have sacrificed to be with each other, how there's been intentionality to be with each other, the things that we've done without so that we can be with people that we love. Um, when I was a, a missionary, I'm way past my time, so you're just going to have to forgive me this morning, guys. When, I was a, when we were missionaries in Bangladesh, one of the things I had to do is I had to raise my support every you know, every four years, we had to come back and raise our support to go back to the field. And um, <clears throat> so this particular furlough, I was uh, uh, living in Louisiana and I had to travel around to these different churches to raise money. And I had made a commitment. By this time, my kids were in school, so I couldn't really, I, we couldn't take them out. I could, they couldn't travel with me that much. And so I had made a commitment to my family that every Sunday night, no matter how late the service ended, because we had Sunday night services back then, every Sunday night, no matter how late the service ended, I would make my way back home. No, even if I got home at one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, I would make my way back home to wake up in the morning with my kids and, you know, sleep next to my wife. And so I'd made that commitment. But there's this one Louisiana winter when I wasn't able to keep that commitment. I know it doesn't really snow much in Louisiana. And sometimes they threaten for snow in Louisiana. But now that I've lived here, I know that that was just, you know, <laughs> I know. We're, we're, we're pitiful. I get it. <laughs> um, but, you know, they're not prepared for it, right? So, so it, and when, it's, when they threaten snow in Louisiana, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like it, like it, uh, it snows, but it never hits the ground, you know? Or it snows and it hits the ground and it's gone in 30 seconds, you know? So, so it's not really a threat, but man, when you say uh, in the news it's gonna snow tomorrow night or whatever, people are freaking out, you know? I mean, they're, they're stocking up for whatever, you know? And they're worried that they're not gonna be able to go to school and go to work and businesses are closing down because of half an inch of snow. And so um, it's, it is, I'm, I'm serious. I'm, I know I'm being... Maybe a little bit exaggerating, but it's kind of that way. And so there's this forecast of snow, and I had left that morning again because it's an idea. They say it's going to snow, but sometimes it just, it's nothing, right? And I, and I can't miss services. So I left that morning to my morning service, and I had an evening service. I went up there to the, in northern Louisiana to speak in that church. And on the, I was about to leave when the pastor came and stopped me. He said, hey, listen, it's snowing, and they're closing down I-49. Now, now that I live here, they probably closed down I-49 for an inch of snow, probably. But nonetheless, they were closing down I-49, right? And so I, I told them, I said, well, I, I've made a commitment. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go home. And so I got in my car, and I decided to avoid I-49. Instead, I did the smart thing of taking all these side roads, right? <laughs> And so I'm trying to make my way back, and, and I'm, on, I'm in the middle of Kisatchee National Forest trying to find my way back to my town. I'm looking at, you know, before, you know, map, Google Maps and all that stuff, I have this big magazine, this big book out with road maps of how to get to where, you know, I'm trying to find these highways. And I notice as I'm driving towards my house or in the direction of where I live, I notice that the lights were getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer, like... Something's wrong with my car. Any of you mechanics here know what was going on? Your alternator. That's right. <laughs> I, I had a 1985 Hyundai Excel, and back when Hyundais were, you know, it was a cheap car, really, really cheap car, and so the alternator went out. And so now here I am stranded in the middle of Kasachi National Forest with no, no power, no, no heat in the car. 
Uh, it's, I left the house, it was 70 degrees, when it, now it's like 20 degrees, and I don't have any, the proper clothing, so I'm freezing in the car, you know, and I'm thinking, I'm going to die on the side of the road here, and nobody's going to find me for a week, because I'm in, like I said, I was on this highway through Kasachi National Forest. But, but a few months earlier, we had bought, or we had rented this, um, this bag phone, remember bag phones? You know, you plug them in, and I had this bag phone. And you never, it was a bag phone that you only, you, you bought it, you got it only so that you could look cool and pretend you had money because you didn't want to use it. It's like $3 a minute or $5 a minute to make a phone call. So you didn't want to use it at all. You're just like, it sits there. You know, I got a phone, you know, kind of thing. And so uh, I, I was able to get, grab the phone, make a 911 call. The dispatcher said, we're going to send a tow truck out there. They sent a tow truck. It took them three hours to find me. And when they found me, you know, he hooked everything up. I got in his nice toasty cab and went to a hotel, checked me into a hotel. The hotel I stayed in was 40, 40 miles from my house. I was really close. I didn't quite make it. <clears throat> and I uh, called my wife and I told her, hey, I'm really sad that I can't be there. I'm sorry. She said, that's okay. School's canceled for tomorrow. <laughs> I'm serious. It might have been an inch of snow, really, but this school was canceled. Um, <clears throat> and so... Uh, well, I was riding with the tow truck driver. I was explained. He was asking me. He said, "Really, like in a, he had a like a few extra words." He said, "He goes, why in the you know blankety blank whatever are you out here in the middle of blankety blank place? What's wrong with you? You know that's what he kind of said like that to me." And I'm and so I'm like spiritual. I'm like, well, let me tell you my commitment that I made to my family. You know, I'm gonna go home. I'm gonna be with my family. But you know, whatever. I said, he just looked at me kind of like you're an idiot, <laughs> and uh, he wasn't romantic at all, not sympathetic at all. Here's what I'm trying to say. When we are committed to, to a relationship, we should be willing to do some pretty crazy stuff to be with them. We should. Paul says this in verse 18, kind of explains why he wasn't able to make it. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. Here's what you need to know. Commitment to others, others is always targeted by the enemy. He does not want you to commit to other people. Satan destroys community by, by undermining commitment. Just like a lion wants to prey on a gazelle, what do they do? They isolate them from the group and they go after them. That's what Satan wants. He wants you to be all alone. He doesn't want you to be in a community. He, wants you, he doesn't want you to be committed to anything so he can basically prey on you. Over the years, I've talked with people about this. And they're frustrated with their spiritual journey. They're wondering, why am I this roller coaster ride spiritually? I wish I wasn't. And I say, yeah, I understand that. I get it. You know? And they'll say things like, I want to be, I want to, I want, I want to go down a new path. I want, to, I want to have a different kind of life. And I'm like, yes, that's what you need. But here's what I've often discovered is that they want to go down a different path, but they want to go down a, that different path with the same people. And it is hard, it is hard to go down a different path with the same people. If you've been on this path with these people, it is hard to get these people to go down this path with you. My grandmother used to say something to me, it used to irritate the daylights out of me. She would say in Spanish, she'd say, dime con, dime con quien tu andas, yo te diré quien tu eres. Let me tell you who you, tell me who you're with and I'll tell you who you are. I used to be so mad about that. But it was so true. It was so true. I don't know what your future looks like. I can't predict your future, but if you tell me who you're hanging with, 
I can have a pretty good guess of where you're going. Different direction means doing life with some different people. Let me just, uh, let me just wrap this up. Verse 19, the Apostle Paul says, For what is our hope, our joy, our crown, in which we, we, in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when, we, when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. I want to ask us to stand. I want to ask you a question. What is your glory? What is your crown? What is your joy? Is it your portfolio? Is it... Is it your determination to climb the corporate ladder and all the successes you've managed to accomplish along the way? Is your crown the house in which you live in or the car that you're driving? Scriptures will tell us none of that is. Paul tells us that obviously Jesus is our our joy. We're going to celebrate standing in the presence of the Lord, but, but each other. That's what's going to really matter. That's what's going to really matter. When we're standing in the presence of God, the fact that people that you did life with, the people that you encouraged, the people that encouraged you are going to stand shoulder to shoulder next to you, that's going to be your joy. That's going to be your crown. That's going to be your glory. And it takes commitment to get there. It takes commitment. First, commitment to the Lord. Say, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. Secondly, it's commitment to, to each other. See, we live in a culture in which we want connection, we want community, but we're not really willing to commit. This church is not going to be that way. We will challenge you to be in life-giving community with one another. And you might have excuses for it. You might have reasons why. And we'll listen patiently and we'll say, okay, yeah, I get it. I understand. But you need to be in life-giving community with one another. If, if, if you want to have deep community, if you want your, life, your spiritual life to be on that trajectory, you need to be doing life with each other. Amen. I'm going to pray and then we're going to dismiss. Father, I just want to thank you, God, for what you're doing in this place. God, I thank you for this community of believers. I thank you for Life Church. I thank you, Father, for how you have brought people together, Lord God. People who were some, at one point so far from you, God, so far away. And God, you've brought them together because they've committed to each other. And first they committed to you, Jesus, but now they're committing themselves to each other. So, Lord, will you help us to be that church? A church that's 100% committed to you and then in turn 100% committed to each other. That we're not just members of a church we're not just people who who happen to go come to this place on Sunday mornings but we happen to be brothers and sisters in a family that you God are the author of help us God with our commitments we ask it in Jesus name amen amen our prayer teams are here to left and right if you're here this morning and you'd like prayer I encourage you to come and pray with them they'd love to pray with you and uh and you know what if as we're talking about commitment, as we're talking about community, one of the things that we do here at Life Church is we have life groups. And if you're not connected in a life group, 
I really want to challenge you to, to go to our website, lifechurchnow.org forward slash life groups and, and jump in one, okay? Or if you don't find something you like, email Marco and say, hey, I want to be in a life group. How can I get be in a life group? And we'll figure out a way for you to do it, all right? Although, so thank you so much for being with us. We'll see you next week. God bless you. Amen. Amen.